The liturgy is in fact the first teacher of catechism. Being more is not just what we get to define, it's how God calls us to himself. He is the more. To do a little mystagogical catechesis. Mystagogical catechesis. Huh? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. <laughs> is that a little too hot? Sorry. Be more. That makes sense. Be more. Yes! This is part one of two of a special extended edition episode on liturgical music. Oh, hello everybody. Welcome to Mysticat. My name is Curtis Ketty. And my name is Father Andrew Strobel. This is not a podcast about cats. It is a podcast about mystagogical catechesis. And today, we're getting spicy. And you know what they say? Dogs have owners, but mysticats have fathers. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Let's start this over. I'm Father Andrew Strobel. And I'm Curtis Ketty. And this is Mysticat, your podcast about mystagogical catechesis. Woo! And today we're going to speak a little bit about why we sing the songs that we do at Mass. Actually, we're going to talk about singing the Mass. Whoa! You, you want to be able to objectively speak about what is... What is the purpose of music in the liturgy? Why are we doing it? Yeah, but I think we get it when we talk about sacred art in other ways, right? Like the catechism talks about music as the greatest sacred art we have. But, you know, I had a family come up to me after Mass the other week, and it was awesome. Uh, the girl colored in an image of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, our patron for our parish, and handed it to me. Now, is that meaningful? Is that awesome? Like, you know, a, a drawing from a child that is so beautiful, right? But it is it universally meaningful in a way that you would um, put it up for mass, for universal um, veneration, right? I mean, some might argue, yes, of course, like the children are the greatest artists. But in another stand, sense, like the standards that the church gives, I mean, might call us to more. Right, but, <laughs> Curtis but, is like looking at me like, you be careful. <laughs> but, but what you're doing, you're saying that music that you love so much, that is so meaningful to you, I've just compared it to the scrawling of a child. No, but what I'm saying is, um, but the scrawling of the child, <laughs> scrawling, the drawing <laughs> of a child is meaningful. The challenge is, does it meet the criteria that the church sets forth for sacred art worthy of the liturgy that has specific criteria? It right. might meet one or two, but does it meet all? Can it bear the weight of the Yeah, history? can it bear the weight of the... And that's where not all art is acceptable. And this is where we get into trouble when, when you talk about, like the worship wars and like people fighting over this one i think it's awesome that people are passionate that's great but two it is tough when you say a beauty is objective yeah right? I, I mean is truth yeah. objective <laughs> is yeah. goodness objective then is beauty objective and that's the trouble people have they Absolutely. want beauty just like truth just like goodness to be relative what's beautiful for you is beautiful for you what's beautiful for me is beautiful for me People say, okay, where do we find objective truth? Yeah. Well, the, the scripture says the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. We have no problem accepting that, I think, as Catholics. For the most part, we say, yes, the church is is you know been guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit. We can trust the church. Okay, so the other one, uh, an objective goodness, true. Objective goodness is also something that we look to and say, yes, there's a standard of what is good and what is evil. We don't get to decide. But this third one, beauty... Oh my gosh, we have swallowed that lie that we the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's even a yes. phrase that we say. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is totally What false. is beautiful for you, <laughs> what you like in the liturgy is all well and good. Yeah. But I have my preferences and maybe we should be taking a survey of the majority of people and just doing based on, you know, what the majority of us find beautiful. Well, some Christians do that when it comes to truth. When it comes to goodness, when it comes to morality, they sit around and have conferences that determine, um, you know, is this sinful or not anymore on some things. That is not the Catholic Church. That's not the deposit of faith. As you've said from the beginning, our Lord gave us the magisterium to guide us in terms of what is objective, what and, is true. And here's a big uh, explosive statement. Mm -hmm. You know, there are no parts 
in God, he's supremely simple. Yes. It's almost it's almost hard for us to grasp that his justice and his mercy are the same. Yes. But when we talk about the transcendentals, goodness, yeah. truth, and beauty, we're we're describing the source. We're talking about God himself. Yeah, God. There yes. is no distinction between goodness, truth, and beauty. And yeah, <laughs> at its out. highest level. And if you just if you just say I'm gonna take goodness, I'm gonna take truth, but I'm gonna make beauty subjective, you have impacted the goodness and the truth. Well, some, it will some degrade. have made this argument. It'll poison everything. As just a little sidebar, not that we need to go on a tangent yet, but why not? Some have made that argument that when you look at culturally what has happened when you don't have an objective standard for beauty, you can look at um, what we believe, what we believe is true. Because the church has always had this standard of lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, right? And our highest form of prayer is the Mass that contains with it, of course, uh, that which is truly beautiful, right? I mean, there's there's also this understanding that, I mean, we get into moral relativism in the modern age in a way that we start questioning what is true. It's, it's, it's no wonder that we've questioned what is beautiful. Well, you know why good. we question what is true? Yeah. Because we don't like what the truth says. Yeah, that's true. We're like, that can't be true. (laughs) That's true. That makes me uncomfortable. That can't be good. I'm a good person and I don't like that. Yeah. It doesn't feel good. And then that can't be beautiful because it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's it's not what I like. And if if I judge beauty as all the things that I like, then we're in big trouble. But that's where we are. We live in such a subjective culture. Yeah, we've we've basically when you make everything true when everything is good, when everything is beautiful, it doesn't have any meaning anymore. Yeah, nothing is. is. Everyone is special. Yeah, so for instance, if all music is beautiful, and then could the argument be made that all music is appropriate for the liturgy? I don't know. No, I do know. No, the church doesn't make that statement. We could talk about the science of music. Yes. And we could say, what is music at all? You know, what makes music different from the sound of a train going by? Now, somebody would say, well, maybe nothing. But I would I would say that what makes music different is that it's ordered sound. Like it's vibrations that are done in a certain order. It makes order out of the chaos. And that the more beautiful music is, is the more ordered that it is. Now, it's order mixed with surprise. Mm. Because that's where you get beauty. It's like... Something is ordered, but there's this element of surprise to it. It's like you, it's unexpected. Like you, you think you have it predicted, but then there's a twist. And I think that all the great works of musical art, like universally accepted works of musical art, contain an element of that. It's not perfect symmetry. You know, there's like an asymmetry to it. And, you know, we need to come to grips with the fact that there is such a thing as objectively beautiful music, whether you think it's beautiful or not. Yeah. And so we are on a constant quest as a hum- as human species <laughs> to discover what is beautiful, just like to discover what is true and to discover what is good. And we could arrive there on our own, but we would also have a lot of mixture of error built in. And we've seen that in the history of music, you know. But the thing with the churches and with Revelation is that it has been now revealed to us what the truth is, what the the true good is, and what the beautiful is. So we can trust the church. I mean, if we can trust the church to guide us into truth by the power of the Holy Spirit and to teach us what is good and what is evil, then we also need to trust the church to tell us what is beautiful. And there's been a lot of reflection, you know, over the course of salvation history on fit worship for God. Not just 2,000 years, but... No, way more longer, you yeah. Know, and it began, you could say that sacred music really began with Moses and Sinai. And of course, there was the, the song that they sang, that sort of spontaneous act of praise at the, the Red Sea after the Egyptians are washed away. But really, that's not liturgical music yet. Yeah. Liturgical celebrations come with the building of the tabernacle, with the instructions given by God at Mount Sinai. And what we discover there is in that primitive, um, these liturgical celebrations in the wilderness was absolute silence. There was no music. 
music comes way down the line with the advent of King David, you know, as the psalmist and bringing music into the liturgy. For hundreds of years before then, there was none. And I mean, we have to begin there. It's like yeah. music springs from silence and goes back mm-hmm. into silence. Yeah, and if we just think music as a way to avoid silence, which I think can be a common experience, right? I've had comments um, at mass about silence uh, in the liturgy that it's awkward, Father, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, why'd the song stop? You know, I've thought those thoughts before too when I want to avoid silence because what does silence allow? It allows a type of encounter you don't have in any other way with God. If we're going to, we can do this sort of like as a narrative. Let's begin with silence. You know, there's a document, there's a document called Sing to the Lord that the the U.S. bishops, uh of Catholic bishops, they put out in 2007, not very long ago. Yeah. And they said this about silence. Um, This is paragraph 118. They say, music arises out of silence and returns to silence. God is revealed both in the beauty of song and in the power of silence. The importance of silence in the liturgy cannot be overemphasized. And just like, yes, silence can feel awkward, just like truth can be awkward. And the, the real good, the goodness that reveals to us our own sinfulness, that's awkward. And silence too, that's where beauty begins. And you know, in the, in the liturgy, music really needs to have a relationship a kinship with silence like it can't be opposed to it it needs to be organically related to it and so often just in our daily experience if we don't train ourselves uh, to embrace silence you know we try to avoid it we try to fill it up we turn on uh, you know our radio in the car we press play on something we we turn on the podcast like Mr. Cat and we just avoid what silence has to offer so many times during the day I mean there's a real spiritual crisis of silence oh yeah I think it was Cardinal Robert Seurat who said that it's almost like we're walking around all day long in a noisy world and in our front shirt pocket we have a little pocket radio that also is always playing. And it's and we don't even realize how busy and crazy our, our thoughts are because we're so distracted. But when you walk into a church, in his analogy, and you're suddenly surrounded with great silence, for the first time you hear that radio. And you realize, wow, I always have this noise with me. And it's only within the silence that you can finally quiet your mind. Yeah, for sure. Now think about this. What if... We understood silence as so precious, we had to have a high standard of when not to have it, right? Of what is worthy to be heard instead, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there really has to be a justification. And when you consider silence in terms of prayer, that if music, even if music for mass, sacred music has to flow from silence and lead us back into silence, we need to first ask ourselves, just as the person uh, you know, who is being encountered by God, who is desiring uh, that encounter, whether we really want that encounter or not, you know, whether we actually appreciate silence before we say, what do I prefer in terms of music, right? Because that's what I, I think we get into. We jump to what do I want in terms of music before I even ask the question, do I want silence? And yeah, there's a real challenge. Because we're quick to jump to music as a source of comfort. Yeah, oh gosh. And it is, and that is our experience. Mm-hmm. You know, that culturally, and in one sense, there's absolutely nothing wrong about that, and that's so good. You know, music can remind us of, um, you know, our favorite times during a certain era of our life, like high school, or like this was my parents' favorite song to play, or all sorts of beautiful um, associations with music, or it can just get us fired up, you know, to work out. At least I've heard that, right? Or it can get us, you know, in um, a certain mindset um, that can be so beneficial. But, 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 is that all music's supposed to do, right? Right. And we're just, I mean, you could just, we could just be talking about music right now. Yeah. And I'm not a musician. Like, you're a musician. You're skilled at it. But the liturgy has to both speak to those who are fluent in music mm-hmm. and those like me who aren't, right? Like, I've said so many times, I don't know music. I well, don't know music. And the liturgy is not a music class, and no. it's not a music appreciation course. No. It's not about um, learning like 
new songs that are going to you know bring provide you comfort during the week. Although that is a often a happy byproduct. But what music is in the liturgy is a is it has a function. It is a tool. It is there to support the liturgical action, to elevate the liturgical text, to to take away the veil from our eyes so that we understand the, just the, the depth and the solemnity and the mystery that we're entering into in the liturgy. And if the music that we choose does not support the liturgical action, or even worse, begins to make the liturgy support it. Like the music is being just supported by the liturgy. Like the the liturgy is just giving us an excuse to sing this song that we love, yeah. as opposed to it coming underneath the liturgy and supporting the action. Yeah. Then we're in, we've lost the plot. We missed the point. For sure. If we prefer the music, if it's at somehow at odds or competing with the liturgical action, and just a reminder, like what is the liturgical action? Well, it's the Paschal mystery. It's the action of God, you know, that our Lord is saving us in the liturgy. And so the passion, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I think you might've shared a video with me and if you didn't, someone did, um, from that, uh, great scene in star Wars where they're receiving their commendation oh, at yeah. the end. Right. And without any music. Yeah, they remove the music and you just hear like the squeaking leather jackets and the awkward beeps from R2-D2. Yeah, and, and in that silence, it's so really awkward because like you're not expecting it and you're so used to the grand music of your, one of your favorite folks, John Williams. John Williams. Woo! Um, getting into, uh, you know, to, to place us in that scene in a very special way. And that supports the action. But could you imagine if there was other music besides John Williams' score there? You, you might miss the action altogether. You know, if it's not speaking to what's actually being done in that ceremony. Well, the same is true with the mass, but how much more important is it than a Star Wars movie? I, f- I think it's, you know, rather... <laughs> Watch it. <laughs> it's quite a bit more important. Quite a I'm bit like, more I'm important. I'm having trouble finding the language to yeah. express <laughs> adequately how much more important it is. Yeah, so just be silent. So okay. this is why... <laughs> This is why it's not just left up to us and our own preferences to choose music for liturgy. Well, and actually, so here's what's so scary, right? In that document you referenced, Sing to the Lord. So the bishops of the United States, in their instruction to to all of us um, who are responsible for preparing mass, they actually say whose responsibility, first of all, it is to prepare music for liturgy. And it scares me to death. In paragraph 119, (laughs) or I should be so excited but I'm actually very scared. 119 says, preparation for the celebration of the sacred liturgy and particularly for the selection of what is to be sung at the liturgy is ultimately the responsibility of the pastor and of the priest who will celebrate the mass. At the same time, in planning the celebration of mass, the priest should have in mind the common spiritual good of the people of God rather than his own inclinations. So here's the thing. The priest is on to prepare the music for mass, but it can't simply be like as a priest, my personal inclinations that dictate the day. Cause I have my own personal preferences, right? But that's not what's supposed to dominate, <laughs> but it is a real challenge because for so long as a priest, you know, I didn't understand that role. I didn't understand that, especially as a pastor of a parish, it is, I'm, I have to answer for every song we sing at mass, every chant we do every liturgical action I'm ultimately responsible for. And not, I don't have to answer first to the parishioners or to the bishop. I have to answer first to Jesus Christ, whose action we're entering into. And that's what's so crazy, right? Is that the responsibility falling on the shoulders of the priest is one that is so great. Thanks be to God, it's not up to our whims or simply what I feel like or my preferences, even if they've been developed over time and really, um, good and pleasant ways, and even you know ways that can help with prayer in general. If they don't aid this particular liturgical action, what are we doing? So the the thing that you just read referenced the spiritual good, yeah, of the faithful. Thanks be to God. Now you could, I feel like you could define that in so many different ways. Yeah. Again, the subjective good, you know. What's good for me spiritually might be different from what's good for you spiritually, and of course that's a lie. Yeah. You know, there's an objective good. So, um, what? How would you define the spiritual good of the faithful? Like, what? What? What's our objective here? When- well, the spiritual good of the faithful would be whatever fosters 
holiness of life, whatever fosters um, that life in Christ that we've been given in baptism, and really whatever fosters then us being united to the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I had someone come up to me years ago who's actually a parishioner now, so uh, this is kind of beautiful. Um, you know, I'd said something in a homily that struck him, and he came up after to me after Mass, and he said, Father, I want you to uh, continue to do what you're doing because you're, uh, you're comforting the afflicted and you're afflicting the comforted. <laughs> and when he said that phrase, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comforted, you know, in the same homily, right, um, he was thinking I could do both, which thanks be to God if that ever happens, right? By God's grace, that can happen. But different people at Mass need different things. So when you talk about the spiritual good of all, for some of us being called to the Paschal mystery is hard because I have to leave behind sin. I have to leave behind my attachments to this world. For some of us, it's hard because we realize how grand and glorious God is and how unworthy we are. For some of us, though, it's this tremendous joy and we actually feel to our core the joy of being united to Christ. And somehow, the music at Mass has to speak to all of us. So for me, it's a matter of the spiritual good of the people always points to our Lord right? But I don't get to just decide how to do that. Like the church, the bride of Christ who's been entrusted with the liturgy instructs me. And the part we didn't read here is that um, I can have help, <laughs> which is awesome. So the pastor, next paragraph, may designate that the director of music can help them out. Okay. Which is good. And so, hey, you just but, happen to be here. But at the end of the day, yeah. it's, your, it's your problem. But I have to answer. And that's so, where, if <laughs> that we never talk about it, me. if we never discuss, if we never go over, um, then, yeah, there's something lacking. Well, I think that's interesting because now we've, this is, what, we've done a few episodes of this podcast now. And we, we've talked a little bit about the the significance of the sacred liturgy and what we are called to, to be doing and participating in and how we're being transformed and, and shaped and changed. Well, also in Singing of the Lord, it talks about the purpose, the primary role, the primary role of music. And I think you really can only understand this if you have all that other stuff in place. Yeah. Like, we're not just singing at Mass. No. We're singing the Mass. And we'll talk about that oh, in a second. Oh, boy. I'm we'll sorry. Was that, that a little too crazy? That gets me all wound up. But the idea, you know, music it elevates everything that we're doing. It unifies us. It is sort of, um, it, it, it springs forth from all of our hearts into this one thing that we're doing together. It's a beautiful sign of our unity in Christ. But the primary role of music, according to the U.S. bishops in 2007, sing to the Lord, they say, the primary role of music in the liturgy is to help, and I like that, to help is to help the members of the gathered assembly to join themselves with the action of Christ and to give voice to the gift of faith. The primary role of music is to help the gathered assembly to join themselves with the action of Christ and give voice to the gift of faith. When, the, when, you, when you understand that, you know, then I think you can intelligently enter into, like, okay, what are the qualities? Mm -hmm. What are the the texts? What are the songs that that we need to help the gathered assembly enter into the action of Christ in this moment? Because there's different moments within the liturgy that we are wanting to enter into the action, and how does this music help us to do this? Because we could do this without music, mm -hmm. and I think. That's key too. The mass doesn't need our music, but yeah, the music it, does help. It really you like because the mass without music, you know, very naturally has um, these very weighty moments of silence. So if we're gonna have music at mass, we got to justify why. Why do you break that silence? Mm. And does the music complement the silence and lead us from it back to it? Mm. I mean, that's a whole different way to think about music at mass. And when you start to think about what it means to sing the Mass, mm -hmm. which is something that the the priest, the celebrating priest, does, you know, when they're chanting the prayers, is the music that we that we do as an assembly, is that in union with the music that the priest is doing? Or is there 
is there a huge difference where it almost feels like an interruption? Now, that's a great question, right? Does it feel like an interruption? But when you say music that the people are doing, I know you're not just talking about like what's opened up in a hymnal and sung. Right. So what do you mean when you say music that the people are doing? What's that also include? Well, I mean, that includes like the chanting. And by chanting, I mean elevated speech. Yeah. You know, this is, this is as ancient as humanity. And I would have loved to have been there, and it must have been in the first days of consciousness of Adam. And maybe he didn't sing until he saw Eve oh, that, for the first wow. time. But there's this idea that <laughs> there's speech, awesome. which speech on its own is musical. It is ordered sound, yeah, it is ordered and sound. there is a musicality to speech. But, you know, what was that first musical note? You know, the great uh, music teacher and conductor and musician, Leonard Bernstein, mm-hmm. you know, he theorized that the very first note may have been, just may have been, a child calling out for his mother. Because it's like, you're hungry, mm-hmm. calling out for milk, or for your mother, and it's ma, and this 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 held sustained note that this the sustained pitch takes what he's saying or she's saying that child and elevates it to a level of new importance. Mm-hmm. And when a whole group of people join together in that one sustained pitch, so you know, often contracts, covenants, prayers, they were always sung. The elevated speech, and really, I mean, the word chant is perfect for that because it's dictated by the text itself. Like the musical, the direction that the note, the musical notes, these sustained pitches goes are dependent upon the text. So, for example, if I was going to say, hear my prayer, O Lord, you know, you'd say it, hear my prayer, O Lord, and maybe you would sing it, hear my prayer, O Lord, like, because it actually, the, the way I say it indicates where I'm going to go with the chant. Yeah. And so the, the chant is just elevated speech. And so whenever we get, join our voices together as an assembly to sustain these pitches together, we are elevating the whole prayer. And that is, I mean, that is music. That is music. Now, I love that understanding, right, that um, music chant is elevated speech but just look at the whole reality of speech you know in the beginning we got to converse with god in the garden um but all right away temptation enters into speech right and then after sin the original sin all of creation is affected even speech right so now not only can we make beautiful oaths and covenants with god we can make false oaths. We can make curses. We can not, not only speak blessings, but we can speak a curse. We not only can glorify God with our speech, but we can sin. We can use speech to unite, or we can use it to divide. And so there's like good and bad speech. And then- Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Versus the day of Pentecost. That's right, yeah. yeah. That, then Pentecost, yeah, or the Tower of Babel, this now speech as this point of division of the people to Pentecost, speech now being a way to unite the people. Uh, back to God. But think about that too. And just like, we would get this and we, if we would say, you know, is every spoken word appropriate for the mass? No. So if not every spoken word is appropriate for mass or every phrase appropriate for mass that we could say, then why can we not then take it to the next extent? Then should every elevated phrase or elevated word that is sung be appropriate for the mass? This is why Latin has such a preeminent place in our liturgy because not only are we joining our voices together, you know, to make a sustained pitch and to unify our hearts, but we are also joining together with the whole church throughout time who have prayed these prayers in this exact way and language. And that is a profound point of unity. And so, even though it's strange for the American ear or the Canadian ear to hear this other language that has no real relevance to our daily life that we can perceive, um, when we sing in Latin, we are, we are uniting ourselves to the whole church 
of all different cultures and all different times, all different places. That is really interesting because, you know, we've both experienced liturgies then that instead of um, allowing Latin to like be what unites us, um, you know, you have people that have different native tongues and I totally get that, you know, I speak in the language I was raised in, right? In English. Um, but, you know, we've been to liturgies where like it's divided up and the pastoral decision is made. Well, we're going to sing this song in Spanish. We're going to do this one in Vietnamese. We're going to do this one in English, right? And there's something nice about that in the sense that we're recognizing various cultures present. But here's the challenge. In Olathe, Kansas, where we have our parish, I was just counting up in my head how many uh, native languages uh, that I know of parishioners that are present, you know, when it comes to our own parishioners, Spanish, Portuguese, English, Swahili, French. And that's not, I mean, I don't even know what other native languages might be present. And so if we were to do that in a way that actually was inclusive, right? All of a sudden, are you getting closer to Pentecost? Or are you getting closer to Babel, right? Like if you take it to its logical conclusion. Now that's not to degrade the pastoral decisions of others who have to plan huge liturgies, especially across dioceses and everything, because that's a beautiful challenge. But when are we going to embrace the silence? When are we going to relook at the language of the church in the Latin rite, right? Latin. Yeah, and you know, often whenever I bring up Latin, which seems like among certain oh, Catholic man. circles, it's a bad word. It's like the L word. Don't say Latin. Isn't that pre-Vatican II? Didn't the Second Vatican Council finally rid our like rid the Church of Latin so that you know our masses could be more seeker friendly and people could understand what's going on? As though Latin was the thing that was broken in the Church and that we fixed it. But I mean, this this idea is is revealing an impoverished understanding of what the Second Vatican Council actually taught. Like the Second Vatican Council promoted Latin. It said, yes, we can we can move to vernacular to the to the language of the different communities and areas, but we cannot lose, you know, this heritage, this unifying language of our faith, which is Latin. And even in two thousand seven, back to the document saying to the Lord. At one point, uh, paragraph 75, they say that each worshiping community in the United States, including all age groups and all ethnic groups, should at a minimum learn, you know, the Kyrie, which is Greek, but the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy in Latin, and the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God in Latin, in Latin. And then they say more difficult chants, yeah. such as Gloria and settings of the Creed and the Our Father, might be learned after the easier chance have been mastered. And this is at a minimum. Yeah. And this is 2007. Yeah. And I, I do feel for people who have been told different things, especially by priests who are well-meaning, who lived through a time of great transition in the church, and we're all dealing with that. And we all have experienced that to various degrees. And, you know, for some people, there are some real deep scars. But I want to get past the self-loathing, right? Like, we shouldn't hear what the church teaches and say, no, 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 but that reminds me of my childhood, and my childhood was bad, so I want to get away from it. It's like, listen, we have to either let the church be our mother or not <laughs> at a certain point, you know? And so um, it really is hard, and I get that, and I totally feel i have the heart of a pastor thanks be to god and my heart's broken when people are hurting and i want to help but i don't know a way to actually help everyone that's apart from how the church teaches us to mm. so it is a responsibility of a priest to choose the music of mass and for better yeah, or worse. <laughs> you know what i understand i understand the idea of hearing latin and being like well this isn't for me yeah of course, I don't, we don't speak Latin. I don't speak Latin. The only place in the world that has uh, ATM in Latin is in Vatican City, right? Like, to actually do our day-to-day -day business, we're not speaking Latin anymore. And I don't listen to Gregorian chant on no. my commute. No. You know, like, it's just, it's so other. It's not for me. And when I hear Latin in a church, I can understand how some people would feel like they're being alienated, they're being pushed aside, they're being told that you don't matter, get with the program. But the, the truth is... When you actually investigate the reason for Latin in the liturgy, and you see it as actually a point of unity, not alienation, you see it as a point of unity, not just with people all around the world, but with people through the centuries, you know, you see a, a language that is static and that does not change, that Latin is a dead language in the sense that it's not evolving anymore, and so we're able to uh, achieve a clarity 
with Latin that we just can't with English, that there, the chants that we sing in Latin will always be the same now. The holy, holy, holy in English will change. Mm-hmm. Look at how language, like look at how English was 500 years ago yeah. compared to how it is now. Yeah. That will change as we continually translate it to to um, get back to what the Latin is saying. But the Latin will never change. There's this, this sense of stability and this unity with the Latin language that we must appreciate within the liturgy. Sure, and I think some people um, just just aren't aware that you know the prayer book for Mass right now, the Roman Missal. Oh, <laughs> oh it boy! There it is again. The Roman Missal. That was better. Man, I can't believe I keep saying Missal. The Roman... Michelin Man. <laughs> Missal. You know, even since 1962, right, where the common experience has been more praying in the vernacular at Mass. The distinction Pope Benedict XVI made was, you know, the ordinary form and the extraordinary form. Well, the ordinary form's not referring first to language. It's actually referring to uh, the prayers uh, organized in the Missal. And so the addition of the Missal that we use uh, predominantly right now, the ordinary uh, form of the Mass, actually first is in Latin. Like the way that we celebrate Mass right now has an approved English translation, which we use, but it's in Latin also. Like we could still pray the Latin mass in what's now referred to as the ordinary form. And you know, that's, that's, that's a, that is an option too. Right. And we're already on the third translation of that yeah, right now. The, third the Latin hasn't, the, the Latin has not changed, No, but the translations have had to be updated already three mm-hmm. times since the sixties. It's pretty amazing when you consider that, um, the church's official documents are all still in Latin. You know, it's it's not something that we, um, you know, should just take lightly and say, oh, no, no, we don't do that anymore. Like, this is part of our beautiful, rich heritage and who we are still. And that's coming from somebody who took 50 minutes of Latin formally, right? Like, I only took one class period of Latin in seminary. I'm a simplex priest in some ways, right? Now, the guys now are being formed much better, and they're uh, they're going through more language studies, um, which is beautiful, but they're not necessarily coming out fluent. And even before the Second Vatican Council, even when seminary was in uh, Latin, like, it wasn't that everybody was fluent in Latin. There was a ton of saints that had challenge. But... This is all just to say, right now, we we need to first look to what the church provides and not just reject it out of hand. So when you think about Latin and you think about the music for the liturgy, yeah, the liturgical music and how chant, you know, is this elevated speech is really like sort of the primary music of the liturgy that everything flows from, everything is related to. Well, we can't just think of chant in English. You know, it's flowing from how it was chanted in lang- in Latin, which is this objective reality. And going back to the ob- objectivity of truth, goodness, and beauty, it's like, well, where do we go to find the objective beauty that the church has given to us primarily? It is the Latin. It is the Latin chant, not just the text, but how the, the music moves with that, that text. Because remember, the text um, indicates where the music should go. And so... When we gather to sing in our vernacular, in our English, we should be those liturgists, those sacred musicians, um, we should be guided by um, how it was done in that universal language of the church, of Latin. And that's really interesting, because I think it brings us to the point that the Mass, uh, the text of the Mass, actually does have assumptions about music in it, right? When it comes to like the anaphons. At mass and where those are. So what I'm yeah. What, what I'm is getting an to, antiphon? Yeah. Well, we'll get to an antiphon yeah. in a second. But what I'm getting to is like we are so often in the United States today. The common experience at mass is that you're singing a hymn that wasn't first in Latin, that wasn't given to us by the authority of the church as fitting first of all for the mass. It's later on been first written in English and then it's been approved by the bishops for use at mass. But it's like okay, great, great, great. But we're getting so far now away from the objective standards that the church has used that were, yeah, it's, it's appropriate in some senses if pastorally judged that way, but But it's like like, you're given permission. It's not, that wasn't designed. It wasn't. And many of these songs, many of the, even the the great classic hymns were not actually written with the liturgical action in mind. They were not written for the mass. Yeah. They weren't written for the mass. Like we're using music that was written for 
just listening and enjoyment or for some other purpose of prayer. Or just for private worship, private devotion, yeah. or Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah, you Liturgy of the Hours. There's a lot a of for hymns, hymns yeah, there. are in Liturgy of the Hours. But then we take those and we just we put them into the Mass. And the question we have to ask ourselves, and I think this will lead us into the next little part of yeah. the discussion, the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're singing this hymn, what are we singing it in place of? Yeah. Because there is always something given to us in the Mishal, there's always something given to us in in the actual rite. And the church, in her great uh, love and sort of pastoral sensitivities, says to us, if you don't want to do this first thing, here are other options. Yeah. And you can even, if you run out of all those other, if all those other options don't work for you, you can even bring in a hymn if, if it's been approved. Sure. Now, the interesting thing is, I don't think it should necessarily just be viewed as if you don't want to. You know, like as a pastor trying to wrestle with this, it's like, okay, it's not based on my inclinations first. Maybe I don't know or have proficiency in the tones to chant an antiphon. Okay, well, that can be addressed, but maybe for this Mass, I can't address it before then, so let's sing a hymn that we all know. Right. So a hymn like, is like a stepping stone. A stepping it stone. should be to get to eventually the ideal that the church offers Listen, to us. Listen, that's how I'm reading the documents. And I know different people might look at them and say, no, 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 but it's allowed, so just stick with it. But here's the thing. <laughs> I've never found that spiritually beneficial in anything <laughs> in my life, right? <laughs> of if we do the minimum in this area of life, we'll just be fine. What do you think about people who just do the bare minimum? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, now that's saying it as me who used to have the nickname the counter witness from one of my best friends because my life settled for the minimum in so many ways. I'm not saying I'm like amazing. I just, it's, it's bothering me still, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever we settle to say, no, 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 let's just do the minimum. People like it. It's like, yeah, I like the minimum too. I, and if I did the minimum and when it came to the food, right, I'd be eaten out of a gas station every day. Which That's disgusting, you know, <laughs> not some gas stations, uh, man, if we got sponsored by quick trip, I wish there was like a this, timer next to every hot dog. So I know how long it's been spinning no, no, no. on that disgusting no, no, no. Here's how you, conveyor okay. belt. hot tip life hack. When I worked at the movie theater, the way you knew a hot, a roller dog, they're officially called roller dogs in my heart. Okay. A, a roller dog was ready is that it's sweating on the ends. I don't want any sweat near my food. No, no, no. But the you don't use the word sweats. sweating when you talk about food. You don't say, mm, that oh, hot yeah. dog is no, perfect. It it's sweating. It's when ready for me to eat it. I don't want any hot dog sweat. That's disgusting. Uh, okay, what are we talking, talking about, about? Delicious charcuterie. Okay, and, okay. <laughs> back, to, back to liturgical Pure music. Meats. I'm sweating now. The funny thing is here, we're talking about hymns as stepping stones and as like, you know, replacements. And that's not supposed to be a pejorative thing like right. that we're saying, no, 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 hymns bad. No, no, no. It, it, it might be totally pastorally appropriate, right? But my point... But, but where's my, the vision? But my point is that some people look at hymns and say, you're going too traditional on us. Oh, yeah. And, and, oh, and we're talking about hymns as like, well, their stepping stones are something more, even more traditional. It, it's like it's like <laughs> the worst nightmare. There might be people that they're like who've pulled their cars over and like, yeah. what are they saying? Do you know because what? Because we haven't even we haven't even talked about like, you know, like contemporary Protestant music that's being done in the megachurch down the road. Sure. And how that's maybe is that appropriate for the liturgy? I'm talking about like hymns like you know, listen. No, I think you touch on it. Obviously, you like touched all on creatures of our God and King. Out right uh, now. Not quite appropriate for uh, what? <laughs> we haven't even talked about. It. I can only imagine yet. Okay, I can only imagine how Gosh, that would go. Curtis likes to name names. Well, okay, no, think about to be this. Called out. But this rejection of tradition just because it's traditional is a wound our Lord wants to enter into with all of us, right? Because I think there's there's a thing that happens in every generation. This like rebellion against what has been handed on. But if we're going to mass and it's not rooted in the tradition, then I have no idea what we're doing because the most traditional thing we do at mass are the words of our Lord himself at the last supper. This is my body. You know, if we don't want the tradition, then I don't know how we fulfill what our Lord said when he said, do this in memory of me, hmm. right? Like he entrusted the church with sacred tradition. And if we don't want it, then the mass <laughs> is, 
is going to be very difficult. Well, for the mass you. in and of itself, I mean, is tradition. Yeah. The, the idea of tradition. I mean, the the Greek word is paradidomai. It literally means to hand over, mm-hmm. to give. Um, and this is the same word Jesus says when he says, the Father has paradidomied me a kingdom. Mm. And now I paradidomai that kingdom to you. He's saying to the apostles at the Last yeah. Supper, at the, the institution of the Eucharist, my Father traditioned me a kingdom, and now I tradition it to you. In fact, Ooh. even at the cross, when we have all, present all the sacraments of initiation, you know, he gives up his spirit. He's he has the sword in his uh, the spear in his side and blood and water come forth. Mm-hmm. Um, with that that phrase, give up his spirit is paradidomai. Wow. He hands over his spirit. Yeah. So I mean, this idea of the tradition is something that's being handed over. And G.K. Chesterton, he said, there's such a thing as the democracy of the dead. Yeah. Like we we who are alive right now are like the tiniest minority of the church. Yeah. Like we're just this little sliver, and yet sometimes we have the arrogance mm-hmm. to say, well, we know better. When all of the people who came before us, who handed on this precious tradition, yeah. and we're just going to say, well, we have decided, yeah. the living majority, yeah. when we're so outnumbered. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, um, you know, after the Second Vatican Council, and, and maybe before, they talked about hermeneutics, how do you view things? And there's like this understanding of, okay, you can see how we celebrate mass now versus how we celebrate mass in the, now what's the extraordinary form, the 1962 missile and the other missiles before that, um, as either a hermeneutic of rupture, where like we've ruptured from tradition Mm -hmm. and now that's okay. So, you know, we've, we've, we've broken, so we're broken. So we, we're just gonna do something new or there's a hermeneutic of continuity. And I think in our own hearts, we have to try to do that. You know, do we want to have this continual link to Jesus Christ? Or do we want to break from it? If we're honest, our sins break from Christ, right? Our fallen nature, concupiscence, this draw towards sin is a draw towards being broken. So I get the hermeneutic of rupture. Like, let's try it better. We can do better. But there has to be a humility in the spiritual life of, I need to receive what is being given to us by God himself. And whether we like it or not, you know, to reject sacred tradition is to reject Jesus Christ. If it truly is the paradidomai, right? What our Lord handed over to us, then if we're not handing it on ourselves, what are we doing? We're handing ourselves, not ourselves united to Christ, but handing just ourselves. And I love that word continuity, because it's not like, here's the thing, you have to do it exactly the same way. It's, yeah. there, that's not what we're saying, no. because in each generation, in each culture, you know, there is going to be ways that we make it our own. I mean, it's just natural because we are the ones doing it. We're the ones saying these prayers and bringing our music into the liturgy with these guidelines. But it's not like we're innovating. And that's the key. We live in a culture of innovation, the newest thing. It always has to be the newest and better thing. And it's like, this song, this song we're singing, this was written before I was born. I don't want to sing this. But when we talk about continuity, where it's like, it's like a growth. It's like, it's, it's always organically related to what came before. It's, it's a continual, like a blooming of uh, like an outflow. And, and I get that desire that we have to like make something just meaningful to me. Like this is super meaningful to me, but that in the church and the spiritual life is where devotional practices come in where you can have a devotion to the divine mercy and I can have a devotion to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's the same devotion, but go with me. Right. Or I could have a devotion to St. Joseph that you don't have to have. Right. But when it comes to liturgy, when that's the work for the people, right, then that's not a matter of just devotion of what's good for you can be good for you. And what's good for me is good for me in the spiritual life. This is something we have to have in common. But the problem is we view everything sometimes through just a devotional lens of what do I prefer? Right now that has its place in some aspects of prayer, but not when it comes to the mass. Like what gives me my fuzzies? (laughs) I want my fuzzies. I I would love to hear my warm and fuzzy feelings. Curtis, have you ever had a warm fuzzy? I've had many warm fuzzy feelings. Um, I can't think of the last time I had a warm and fuzzy feeling listening to music at mass. <laughs> oh, so I get warm and fuzzy all the time. But um, I mean, yeah, I, I think you actually have to be careful of the warm and fuzzies. I think you can get 
hooked on sure. those. No. And growing oh. up in a charismatic oh, tradition gosh. where it was all about the manipulation of emotions, I'm yeah. very wary of music that tugs on emotions. Well, and we've talked about that, you know, properly ordered emotions versus emotionalism, right? And I think just something that our Lord asked me in prayer all the time is, do you want me or do you want what you think it would be like to be around me, to be associated with me, right? Do you want me or do you want me plus the warm fuzzy? And all the time I have to say, Lord, no, no, I actually do just want you. And it's okay if the liturgy feels like it's training us, right? It's not a cooking show. It's not just, <laughs> here's what you do to go do this at home. No, we can only do this together. Put this on the altar right? for a couple of minutes and we'll yeah. come back to that in a second. Yeah. And it's, yep. not, it's not simply a birthday party where because you like Thomas the Tank Engine that you get a Thomas on your cake, right? Mm-hmm. And, and no. It is the Paschal mystery poured out for us. So we have to realize I'm broken. I'm tempted to rupture instead of continuity. And so am I going to have the humility to accept what has been handed on, the tradition, or am I going to just reject it because of my wounds? Man, the Mass is for you. If you are wounded, the Mass is for you because you get to be united to all those who have been redeemed. You know what? The analogy is really, we're not just broken, we're addicts. You know, we are addicted to all of the stuff in our life that gives us comfort. All, and that includes music. It's definitely entertainment, you know, that we escape using our entertainment. So when we come to the liturgy, I mean, what was, what's truly happening in sanctification in our progress of the spiritual life is we are going through withdrawals. I mean, that's what it is. It's renunciation. There is no spiritual progress without the cross, the Catechism says, which is paragraph 2015, easy to remember. No spiritual progress without the cross, without renunciation, without saying no, and without experiencing that that suffering of letting go. So when we come to Mass, I mean, warm fuzzies, the constellations are, are good, but let's be honest, we're addicts, and it's actually very uncomfortable. It's akin to yeah. an addict being brought out of the basement where they like are doing heroin Mm -hmm. and told, this is what's healthy. Come up here in the sunlight and jog every morning. And it's the worst. We do not want, that does not give me warm fuzzy. I'm puking on the side of the road. No, because there can be a difference between what I want and what I actually need. What is actually good for me or or, what's bad for me, but I'll still justify, right? Because I want it. Woe to us if we try to turn any prayer into something that just serves me instead of our service to God, but especially the gift of the mass, right? Like we are called to so much more than just trying to appreciate the mass on our own terms. We need to have the humility to appreciate it on God's terms because it's his action. To be continued. (laughs) You've been listening to Mysticat, your podcast about mystagogical catechesis. Thank you.